we've been talking this month about seven habits that kind of form the basis of a game plan. If you really want to grow deeper and wider, you've got to do more than just like sit down and think about it. You've actually got to come up with a game plan that will work. So we've got a, a couple of ideas that Pastor Ed's already talked about. By the way, sorry, I'm Pastor Alex. Our lead pastor, Ed, is the one that's in Israel. So it's my privilege to share with you today. And next Sunday, if Ed's plane doesn't get back Saturday night, you'll hear from me again. So pray for Ed to get back on time and be well rested. So we've talked about using resources with wisdom and purpose and practicing creative devotion in our life with Christ. We would have been talking about investing in community, except we had a snow day. Everything got messed up. So today we're talking about nourishing others out of personal wholeness. So how do we bless others, make life better for the people around us, out of not just a, a sense of duty or being dragged into the situation, but because we are overflowing ourselves with the love that God has poured into us, and it kind of spills out from our life, and it impacts the lives of the people around us. So this morning we want to talk about Nourishing others out of personal wholeness. Now, well-known church growth expert that I read this week, his name's Ed Allen, uh, wrote about this very subject in a study we used several years ago. This is what he said. I am convinced that we are designed to nourish one another, to take care of, to encourage, to sacrifice for, to instruct, to develop, and feed one another. We were designed for it. It's when we are at our best, it's when we feel best about ourselves. Now, he goes on to say that we can't take care of others very well if we're limping along ourselves, if we're overwhelmed, if we have no margin in our schedule or spiritual life. So we also need to cultivate personal wholeness, and out of that comes nourishing others. Now, this general idea of us pursuing our relationship with God and then God using us to bless other people. That idea goes all the way back to the very first book of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 12 too, God is talking to Abram, who is the father of Israel, and he's giving this promise to Abram, and it's a promise that extends to us today. God says, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. I will bless you, which is great. That, that works out really well for us, but he's not blessing us just so we can be fat and happy. He's blessing us so that we, in turn, can bless others. And you'll find the same theme all throughout the Bible. In the New Testament, we, we find it in Paul's writing to Timothy. So I've got this reading from 2 Timothy up on the screen. It's from a modern translation, the New Living Translation. You can stay seated. Would you just read it aloud with me? Because I want you to get how Paul kind of packaged this idea of you're blessed, and then you turn around and bless others. So let's read together. In a wealthy home, some utensils are made of gold and silver, and some are made of wood and clay. The expensive utensils are used for special occasions, and the cheap ones are for everyday use. If you keep yourself pure, you will be a special utensil for honorable use. Your life will be clean, and you will be ready for the master to use you for every good work. All right, now we're going to look at it in a, a different translation. This is from the English Standard Version because that's what many of you are reading out of in our daily devotional book. And it's the same idea, just a little bit different wording. I'll read it. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use 
set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So Paul is using this hypothetical example. This is something that could happen in the real world, and he's using that to illustrate a deep spiritual truth. He's teaching with a parable, just as Jesus did. He's saying, look, in a house, in a big house, a house uh, where someone of means owns the house, there are two kinds of vessels or containers or serving utensils, kind of like pots and pans and pitchers and platters and all of the stuff that you use to serve with. You could divide them into two general classes. There are the honorable ones, the valuable containers, which are made up of precious metals, and they're used for noble and meaningful purposes. They're used for special occasions when company comes over. They're the ones that you set out at holiday meals and you polish them up before anybody gets there because they have the family initials on them, or it was grandma's teapot, and so it holds this place of high reverence in your household on the, you know, the china cabinet or whatever, and everybody walks into your dining room and they're supposed to go like, ooh, that looks nice. Now, there are other containers. The English Standard Version says dishonorable because it's the opposite of honorable. So these are the containers that are not things of honor. This is Tupperware. This is, you know, your cheap silverware that if it goes down the garbage disposal, you don't lose any sleep over. It's not the fancy stuff. These are the everyday containers that are made of wood and clay. Back then, you know, they were earthenware, pottery kind of things. Or our days probably plastic. They're perfectly functional, but unlike grandma's silver platter, nobody cares if they break or get lost. Paul seems to be asking us, hey, what kind of vessel do you want to be? He changes halfway through there and he says, if anyone cleanses himself from what is not honorable, then he will be a vessel for honorable use. You know, if, if we are careful about what we do with our spiritual life, then we become a God-honoring utensil. We become a tool that's useful to God for any kind of work. We're set apart for His holy purposes. We're useful to the master of the house, and we're ready for whatever good work God puts in front of us. Now, what I am not saying, let's be real clear about this, what I am not saying is that our goal in life, our challenge, if we want to be followers of Christ, is let's just polish ourselves up and try to do everything we can to be really good people, and then if we do that, God will like us, God will love us, He'll respect us. Because that's not at all what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say, oh, be as good a person as you can because that's what pleases God. The Bible makes it really clear that there is no way we could ever do enough good stuff to impress God. If you pile up all of our good deeds, forget about the bad stuff, you just pile up all of our righteous acts, it would be like a pile of trash before a holy God. So not too impressive. But the great news for us is that we don't have to worry about that. If we, in faith, accept the gift that God gave us in Jesus, if we realize that he died so we could be forgiven and he took our punishment, then we don't have to worry about trying to impress God. The reason God loves us is because we've received his gift of mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. But once we receive that, once we become one of God's children, then out of gratitude to him, out of a sense of obedience and a desire to be useful to him, we do everything we possibly can to be as honorable and holy and obedient to him because we want to be useful for his purposes. So let's break this habit into two pieces and we're going to look at personal wholeness separately from nourishing others. And then at the end, I'll kind of put them back together, okay? So let's talk about personal 
holiness. Let's look for what Peter says about it. We've heard from Paul. Now let's look at, at what Peter says. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, For this very reason, and he's referring to the verses before where he said that God has provided us with everything we need in order to grow. So for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the same sort of push that Paul gives us, like, do everything you can. Start with where you are in your faith, but then add these other elements to it and do everything you can because if these qualities are increasing in your life, you can be effective and productive in serving God. You will be equipped to put your faith into action in the world around you. As you grow in personal wholeness, then you will be able to bless others, to nurture others, to make life better for them. There are tons of ways for us to grow in this area of personal wholeness. So I'm going to rattle off a number of things. I'm just going to touch on them and then zero in on one specific way that, that I want to talk to you about this morning. So one way that you can grow in the area of personal wholeness, uh, having a healthier inner life, being more balanced emotionally, relationally, spiritually, one way you can do that is to hang around other followers of Jesus, people who are headed in the same spiritual direction as you. And our small groups for this semester are just getting started. So it's a great time if you'd be interested in joining one of our groups. You can get more information out in the lobby on the right-hand side, the big blue wall, our new connection point, and uh, find out about how to get involved in a group because it's huge. Another way is by deepening our prayer life. So we, we pray not just with a laundry list of stuff we're asking God for, but we slow down and we create space and we, we sit and wait for God to answer. And we ask Him, hey, God, what do you want to change in me? Uh, another way that we grow is by sitting down with maybe a pastor, our small group leader, or a spiritual mentor. And we try to identify growth frontiers that would be appropriate for us and, and try to figure out, hey, how can I make some headway in this area of sharing my faith? Or I want to read the Bible more, I just don't know how to get started. And we get help from somebody else. For me, one area that's been especially helpful in developing personal wholeness is counseling. And I've seen the same Christian counselor for close to 20 years. It, it may be more than that at this point. But that's really helpful to me, uh, to have somebody that's independent and objective and skillful in kind of untangling the knots and the stuff that's sort of wound up together in my heart and in my head. I would also recommend getting a Sabbath rest, not just the Sabbath as in like, oh, Sunday, that's a day where I don't work but I run around and do all this other stuff and we're really busy with all the 27 other things we can't get to during the week. What I mean by that is having a time, a regular time every week where you are able to have unhurried time with God. It's the same idea on a smaller scale as a sabbatical. And I was fortunate that Gateway blessed me with some time last fall where I could take a sabbatical and it was really helpful to me to have time to, to be away, to recharge, to refresh, and to do some reading and reflecting on some topics of interest to me. Another idea is building margin into our lives, trying to create breathing room or spiritually, financially, emotionally, time-wise, making sure that we have enough left over, that we're setting enough extra time aside that we really are available for God to use us so that we have the freedom to jump in when He 
taps us on the shoulder and says, hey, I want you to get involved in this. Books, another thing you can do. Read a book. These are not substitutes for Bible study, but sometimes books can be really helpful in helping you sort through something. One book I would recommend is this book by Peter Scazzaro, was a classmate of Ed's at Gordon-Conwell. It's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and his premise is that there is a limit to how healthy you can get spiritually if you are unhealthy emotionally. And as a pastor, I love the fact that he bases this on Scripture and kind of helps people like me who are probably emotionally not where they're supposed to be, underdeveloped maybe, and yet it helps me see the connection between that and my spiritual life. Now, I want to take a, a bigger chunk of time and talk about one specific area where we can develop our personal wholeness, and that is clearing up relationships with others. Clearing up relationships with others. I don't know if that phrase sounds weird to you or not, but I think like when my kids were little, we tried to teach them to clean up their own messes. So if you drop your sandwich on the floor, no big deal, pick it up, maybe grab a paper towel, wipe up the floor. We don't have to get all freaked out about that. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody drops stuff. The, the big thing is just trying to figure out how do you clean up your mess. And we wanted them to understand that's true relationally as well. So the general principle is if you mess up, then you fess up, you own it, and then you clean up. That's the general principle. If you mess up, fess up, clean up. And especially when it comes to relationships, I think we got to do a better job of fessing up, owning it, acknowledging our part in that, and then doing everything we can to clean things up and clear out the mess that interferes with the relationship. I think this is an area that is often overlooked for many of us. I know it is for me. I suspect it is at your household, and it definitely is in our church, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar first, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Just the middle of the service, we're taking up the offering, you're getting ready to put your offering in there, and you realize, wait a minute, I got an issue with somebody, or somebody has an issue with me, stop what you're doing. God is more interested in reconciliation than he is your offering. And so Jesus is saying this is a huge priority. So we ought to pursue it. We ought to practice. We ought to get really good at reconciliation. Or Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So we're supposed to follow Christ's example when it comes to forgiveness. 70 times 7, right? Forgive even when it costs you. And Paul says, be kind and compassionate to one another, suggesting this is a two-way street. We're supposed to give forgiveness, and we're supposed to receive forgiveness. This is definitely not easy. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in church. I've been a Christian now for 46 years. I've been in ministry for 36 years, and I got to tell you, this was foreign to me. I mean, I got the idea that like sometimes you have to say you're sorry. Sometimes you even have to act like you mean it. But it wasn't until the church I started attending in seminary, it was like, oh my gosh, this is rocking my world. So this is not an easy thing to do to figure out how to give and receive forgiveness. It's complicated, 
because it involves family of origin experiences, and we all come from different kinds of families. And all of us have a personal default when it comes to handling conflict. Some of us like charge full speed ahead and other people just shut down or avoid it altogether. Our ability to step into somebody else's perspective and understand their point of view, that's really hard to do. And most of us don't have a deep enough understanding of all the ways that we ourselves are broken. So I get that this is a very complicated, difficult challenge, and it will take us a lifetime to get really good at it. So my encouragement is, let's start now and practice this at every opportunity because our families could benefit now. Our marriages, our work, our church could benefit now if we got better at this. So you know there's a a huge difference between saying, I'm sorry, and asking for forgiveness, right? You can flop an I'm sorry on the table. You can write I'm sorry on the mirror in soap and just leave and you don't have to talk about it. It's like, whew, got out of there before we had to have a conversation. But when you ask somebody for forgiveness, you are recognizing that they have something you need. And you are taking a risk because they might not be willing to forgive you. But I think if we got better at this, really practicing it, it would be a blessing to us and it would result in our growth and our personal development. So it may mean, if you're not sure that something needs to be asked forgiveness for, you say, hey, I'm not very good at this stuff, but you know, I've noticed for the last couple of days you seem to be avoiding me here in the office. Did I do something to offend you or did I, because I, I really would like to clear that up if I did. Most people will respond to that. Or if you hurt their feelings, you can say, look, I'm, I'm sorry. And then you kind of relate to them. I, I imagine it might have made you feel, or if I was in your situation and I look at this now, I'd probably be really angry too. So would you please forgive me? I know it may take some time. And is there any way that I can make this up to you? Guys, this is really important if you want to stay married for a long time. We've got to get better at this. You know, saying I'm sorry, but moving beyond that and asking for forgiveness and then trying to make the situation right. It gets more thorny if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I forgive you. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Did I need forgiveness? Hey, as long as we're talking about forgiveness, I forgive you for being a jerk. That's not the time to talk about it. You probably just need to receive that gift in the spirit in which it was extended. And you can say, hey, thank you for extending grace in this situation. I really value our relationship, and I commit to you. I'm going to think about that, and I'm going to pray about that, and and maybe we can come back and talk about that later. There will be another time for you to kind of hash through. See, your email said we were going to meet at 2 o'clock, you know, so you don't need to argue that right at that moment. But it is worth our effort to make this a habit and practice in our life. What a difference this could make in our parenting. Parents... Oh, there are kids in here. Parents sometimes engage in erroneous behavior, things they regret and they wish they hadn't said to their kids. And so when you go back to your kid and say, look, I, was, I got a little fired up. You're not grounded until you're 30. It's only 17. Then, you know, they understand that we make mistakes and we're modeling it for them. And when you say to your child, hey, would you forgive me? I didn't have all the information before I got upset and I should have. So I'll try to do better next time. Man, you're modeling something that can change their life. In our marriages, if you think about all the words of forgiveness and grace that most of us have not said, and what if instead of just leaving those unsaid words at the foundation of our marriage eroding, undercutting, 
the commitment we made? What if we were lovingly giving and receiving forgiveness and clearing away the baggage and building a healthy relationship in our church? I don't know all of you, but I guarantee you, every one of you is a screw-up. And I know that because I am too. We got stuff that we need to work on. And any church of this size, I guarantee you, we are stepping on each other's toes right and left. We are saying things, we're doing things, we think we're being helpful. And I think a lot of times in church, the thought is, well, I should just suck it up and not say anything. I should try to bury my hurt or pretend that they didn't really make me feel left out when I wasn't invited to that meeting. That's not the way it's supposed to be. As a church, we really need to be much better at this. We need to be willing to say, hey, can I talk to you about that matter? My feelings were hurt, if I'm honest. And, you know, we need to make sure that we're pursuing reconciliation. This is such a huge area. I can't say enough about it. Most of us get the general principle, forgive, be forgiven, all of that. But in terms of actually working on it, actually living it out, we underdeliver on that. All right, let me switch gears, talk about the other end of this, about nourishing others. So we've talked about personal wholeness, now let's talk about nourishing others. Some of you may be aware that there are almost 60 times in the Bible where we're told to do something for one another. We honor one another, serve, accept, pray for, submit, bear with, admonish, offer hospitality to one another. And the most often context is love one another. And all of these are specific ways we can nourish others, but there's no indication that this was supposed to be an exhaustive list. It, it seems more likely that these 60 general ideas for loving one another and nourishing one another were just like starters for maybe another 600 ideas that were just going to come to us in the flow of our everyday life. So they remind us that our life following Jesus is not just about us. It's about others too. So I want to zero in on two of the many ways that we can nourish others because these are very powerful ways that we can make a difference in the lives of people around us, whether they're distant from God, maybe they're disinterested in God. It, it could still make life better for them. And on the other hand, if it's somebody that's been a Christ father for many years, this will be a blessing to them as well. So the first way that we can bless others is by encouraging, encouraging others. So Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 said, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. So let's consider it. Let's think about it. Let's really try to work through this and come up with how this would look in everyday life. How do we spur one another on? You know what spurs are, right? They're sharp, pointy. How do we poke each other? How do we prod each other? How do we jab each other with pointy things and encourage each other towards love and good deeds? Not just warm, fuzzy feelings, but actual tangible actions that show up in our everyday life. And we need to do that all the more as we get closer and closer to the time of Christ's return. So we should be aware of discouraged people around us, those who are short on hope or worn down, whether they're at church or in the grocery store, or driving to work around us, you know, on the same street. And we're thinking they're a jerk, and they're just kind of running low. We pray for them. We talk to them. And by talk, I mean we mostly listen. Generally speaking, that's encouraging to people. We could send them an encouraging note, or an email, or call them, or text them, or get together for coffee. 
Sometimes we need to invite or challenge people. Hey, you ought to come to my small group. I know it probably sounds a little weird, but the couples in my group are about the same age as you and your wife, and I think you'd enjoy it. Let's go out to dinner one night, and then you can come over and, and check out my group. Or I'm going to go over to Dell's South Food Pantry and serve. Why don't you come with me? I think it'd be fun. So we can invite people along, or we can challenge people. You're talking to somebody, and it's like, wow, that sounds like a pretty heavy load. I think I would encourage you to maybe consider a counselor because that just seems like a lot for you to work through on your own. We can challenge and encourage people pretty aggressively. And this is an underutilized but very easy and effective means to nourish other people. So encourage other people. The other way of nourishing other people that I want to talk about for a minute is modeling vulnerability. Being transparent, being authentic, letting other people know Early in the conversation, hey, I got my stuff to work on too. I think so many times people perceive Christians as feeling like they are holier than thou. Sometimes we intentionally, unintentionally give people like, oh yes, I go to church. Or we use spiritual lingo and we're thinking that's going to make them think, wow, that's a godly person, I want to be like them. It really doesn't work that way. It's far more effective for us to be clear up front that we're struggling along just like everybody else, but we have hope. We have Christ working in our hearts little by little, changing us from the inside to the outside. And that is far more appealing to other people, especially those who are far from God. So Paul, St. Paul, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, modeled this approach. 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now, Paul, at the time he wrote this, was a rock star in the early church. But he chose to say, like, are you kidding? I am like the worst, most despicable person that ever could have been in God's kingdom. But when you see what he's done for me, man, I hope that encourages you to know that there is hope for you as well. And if we let people see our struggles, our flaws, our weaknesses, and we let them know how God is working in our hearts, then maybe that will change their minds and open their hearts. So we can do it in a general way, kind of in a, a self-deprecating or humorous way, Hey, sorry, it's hard to teach old dogs new tricks. Now that I got this cool gray beard, people really get that, you know? Or, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a slow learner, you know? Or if somebody makes a mistake in a very public and embarrassing way, you could say, hey, no judgment here. I got all of my stuff to work on, and that'll keep me busy for a while. Sometimes there are specific times when we can be even more transparent. You know, a, a coworker is talking about marriage struggles, and we could say, yeah, yeah, hey, been there, done that, still am, and I'm really glad that God doesn't get tired of me praying for the same stuff. See, that lets them know there's something going on in us where there's a sense of hope. So, you have heard me say it before in public, and my wife, if she were here, she would probably say amen very loudly, but I, I've got a lot of issues. I am not the easiest person to live with. And we have a, had a conflict-rich marriage, like that, for about 35 years. And God willing, we'll be together another 35 years. I regularly go to a Christian counselor. That's one of the reasons I'm still married, even though I'm prickly. 
And I'm a workaholic, and not in the Northern Virginia good kind of way, you know, like, hey, that guy's getting ahead, he's a real workaholic. I'm like in the dysfunctional, getting confused about work. I just happen to work for a church and my relationship with God, and that gets all snarled up for me. And I tend to struggle in that area. So I'm just saying that because I want you to understand every one of us, you know, next Sunday that you preach, I'm going to ask you, hey, tell us a couple things about you that are revealing. But, but we, we just need to be upfront with that and, and let people know that we are not at all claiming that we've got it all together. We're just as messed up as everybody else. But we have hope if we have Christ in our life working from the inside out. And I think if we model that authenticity for other people, it gives them the freedom to surface their own struggles. And it opens the door for us to maybe be able to come alongside and walk with them through that. I got to hike quite a few times when I was on my sabbatical last fall. I was in Iowa, and I spent a lot of time in some of the state parks there along the Mississippi River for about three weeks. I think I averaged maybe 20 to 25 miles a week, which is a lot for me. I had a knee replacement a couple of years ago. This is my first opportunity to see, like, does it really work? And it does. It was awesome. So I want you to imagine you're hiking and you're kind of walking through this valley and there's this gorgeous stream. It's just rushing through the valley. The water is cold and crisp and clear and you can hear it running over the rocks. And it's just beautiful meadow. It's quiet. The birds are chirping. Sun is out. It's gorgeous. And you see this older guy walking along, he's got a cane, he's moving real slow, and it looks like he's been hiking for a long time, like, what are you doing out here? We're miles from any place. And he sits down on a rock, obviously tired and exhausted and worn and thirsty, and you happen to have a bucket in your hand, and you think, wait, beautiful water, tired, thirsty guy, I can be a blessing, this. I can help this guy. And you run over there, and with your new knee, you reach down and you get some water in your bucket, and you... Go over to the old guy because you're going to help him and refresh him and bless him. And then when you get there, you realize you lost about half of the water that was in the bucket because your bucket's leaking. That's all right. There's still enough for him to drink. And then you look down at it as you're handing it to him and you realize like, whoa, I really haven't cleaned my bucket in a while. There is like, I don't even know what that is, but it's green. It's ugly. It's probably not very sanitary. He <sighs> had a great idea. You know, your heart moved you, you took action, you have a bucket, you have a vessel, but not one in very good shape. So go back to that idea that Paul had of like, hey, you know, if we will put our effort and energy into making ourselves the kind of vessel that God loves, that God uses, it doesn't leak, it doesn't have crummy junk inside of it that scares other people away. If we invest our effort into personal wholeness, then we can become the kind of people that God will use to nourish others. Let's pray. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. We're going to sing one more song, and, and then we'll wrap up. Bow your heads, if you would, and, and for just a moment, I want you to have a private conversation with God. And I want you just to listen for His voice. If anything that I've said this morning, any of these ideas, any of the concepts kind of resonated with you, would you just pick one of them and see if God seems to be tapping you on the heart saying, hey, I'd like you to do some homework in this area. Heavenly Father, we want to be the kind of people who are growing in their faith, not stagnant, not declining, not shriveling up. We want to be growing deeper, and wider, and we believe that part of that 
is pursuing personal wholeness so that we can better serve the people around us, so that we can bless them and nourish them. We thank you so much for the ways that you have blessed us in the past and you're blessing us now. And we really want to be useful in your hands to bless others. So I pray that you give us eyes to see the needs around us, ears to hear your voice. Pray that you would use us to nourish others, to bless them, to make life better and sweeter. And I ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Let's sing that chorus on No Longer Slaves again. you are so good to us. You take care of us. You provide for us always. We are just completely indebted to you. We thank you because you loved us, that you made a way for us to be connected to you, and forever we are grateful. Lord, I pray that you give us a week, Lord, where we can see you at work. Give us opportunities where we can show love, compassion to those around us, I pray, Lord, for those who are going back to work after about a month long, Lord, they're going back to work, and I just pray that you would just help them during that period. We also pray, Lord, for those who are just in need, those who are sick, that you heal them. And, Lord, we just thank you because at the end of the day, we know all of it 
is about you. And we're so grateful. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go in peace.